from climate change. I'm afraid the water in the lake is not the same as before. To protracted conflicts. They look across the waters, literally at their own homeland, and say we want to go home, but they cannot go home. To closed borders. I'm very worried and I'm telling these countries, please don't promote these approaches. And human rights abuses. Sometimes the information, when it doesn't reach to someone, this can be a disaster, especially if they are stealing your, your rights. A look at the threats and the possible solutions to the refugee crisis. Refugees have more abilities. Tap into the assets that they do have. This is Forced to Flee, a podcast from UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency. I'm Anita Rani. Episode 7, A Changing World. Now, 70 years later, it's very hard sometimes for people to remember or understand the need for a refugee convention. I'm Gillian Triggs, and I'm the Assistant High Commissioner for Protection at the United Nations Refugee Agency. I think that we've had threats, of course, in the past to the convention, but they've been usually very individual. I don't believe we've had such severe threats to the fundamental norms of the Refugee Convention as we have now. We have a, almost a global debate about this question of the movement of peoples as refugees. In this episode, we'll look into a number of threats, how some countries are making it harder for asylum seekers to find refuge, how protracted wars and political indecision are forcing millions to wait for solutions. We start, though, with the biggest threat facing our planet, one that could become the driving force behind displacement in the decades to come. Part one, climate. Climate change is a complicated issue, to say the least, but it does displace people. High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi. Warmer temperatures, intense wildfires, stronger storms, flooding, rising sea levels, coastal erosion, just some of the many impacts of climate change. All of them force people to flee. But climate change also disrupts in many other ways. If you take West Africa, the Sahel region, that is battered by climate change in the form of droughts and floods, essentially, it generally reduces the amount of natural resources available. This in itself generates conflict between groups that is often ethnic and sometimes even of a religious nature. On the shores of Lake Chad, as the sun rises above the water, several fishermen are preparing their latest catch. Pieces of fish are being smoked in an oven dug into the sand, while sardines laid out on straw mats dry in the sun. When I was young, there were big fish the size of this man next to me, over 1.8 meters. Today, the fish are much smaller. Some species have disappeared. Alaji Kajela is a witness to all that has changed. He has spent his entire life, more than 70 years, on the shores of the lake in Chad. I'm afraid 
the water in the lake is not the same as before. Before, several million people fished here. We were comfortable, but today not only have the waters dried up, it is much hotter and the desert is gaining ground. I fear for the future. The landscape is drastically different from when Alaji first learned to fish. In the past six decades, the lake's surface area has decreased by 90%. Many factors are behind the decline, including climate change. The lake is like our mother. It's our treasure. Thanks to it, we have fish, we sail, we trade, we cultivate the land, raise cattle. It's absolutely everything for us. Alaji and those living here are trying to adapt, but climate change also means unpredictability. In the last few years, water levels have slightly gone up. Areas that were once used to plant crops are now underwater. The variation in water levels has an impact on two levels. When there is more water, there are a lot of fish, but it impacts agriculture. When the water drops, it creates a large space for agriculture, but then not enough fish. Alimbo Charimi fled to the northern part of Lake Chad a few years ago. He was driven from his home by another threat, a militant group. Boko Haram, Boko Haram caused a lot of suffering here. In 2015, when my village was attacked, eight people had their throats cut. I had to abandon my house. When I see people even far on the water, I am paralyzed. As soon as I hear a little noise at night, I wake up. I'm never at ease. More than 2.4 million people in the area have been forced to flee because of Boko Haram. Alimbo and others even avoid certain parts of the lake, fearful of another attack. Before Boko Haram, we were already affected by climate change and the variation in the water of the lake. Now, with Boko Haram, it's double crisis. We live in insecurity. Before, I used to sleep naked at night, but today I'm always ready to go, to run like an athlete. Five million people in the Lake Chad Basin region are considered food insecure. Ten million are in need of humanitarian assistance. For Alaji, it all adds to his fear of what will happen in the future. If the water dries up, it's hard for us to leave everything, to build shelters, to cultivate the land. We lose everything. Alaji's livelihood is tied to the lake. Its future will dictate his. But while his concern is the waters receding, for millions, it's the opposite. In the Pacific, both the climates and oceans are getting warmer. Our sea levels are rising faster than the global average, and our coral is dying. The Prime Minister of Tuvalu, Koseo Natano. His low-lying island nation is extremely vulnerable to climate change. Most islands are barely three metres above sea level. And that's not the only threat Pacific island nations face. And some of the most obvious ones are coastal erosion, you have saltwater intrusion, there's more frequency and intensity of tropical cyclones, you have extreme seasons of drought, you have water shortages, uh, you have food shortages because of drought, because of extreme flooding as a result of heavy rainfall. Tammy Tabe is a lecturer at the University of the South Pacific in Fiji. She says countries in the region are trying to adapt. They're planting mangroves and reinforcing seawalls to protect the coast, but they're also looking into another option. 
one of the key adaptation strategies that's widely talked about is relocations, the future relocation of these communities elsewhere that's more safe. The historical relocation of communities is the focus of Tammy's research. She was drawn to the topic because of her own family's experiences. It concerns my grandparents and our history of how we ended up in the Solomon Islands. Tammy's grandparents were forced to relocate twice. The first time was in the late 1930s. They were moved from the Gilbert Islands to nearby Phoenix Islands. They're all part of the nation of Kiribati today. Tammy says the British administration wanted to redistribute the population because of resources. And my grandparents were part of this group of families and mainly because they were considered very poor and have limited land. In the early 1960s, they were forced against their will to move again, this time because of severe drought. My grandparents, they were not given agency to decide whether they should stay or to go. Orders were given that they should leave. Restarting their lives for a second time wasn't easy. When they arrived on the island, nothing was ready for them. There were no means of food supplies and people were housed in a sort of like a big communal house. It was just an island that was given to them and they were supposed to just make a living out of it. Six decades on, they still face challenges. The ownership of the land belongs to the government and it was just sort of lent to them to settle. But they do not have absolute rights to develop the land. So it's still an ongoing issue uh, up until today. Tammy hopes her research will help guide policymakers as they draw up plans for the possible relocation of other communities because of climate change. She says the key lesson from the past, communities need to be consulted. They need to know what their future is going to look like in their new home in the next 10 to 20 years or 30 years and beyond. Tammy says each community is different, so there cannot be a blanket approach. Plus, it depends on where people are moved. Some countries are so small, it's impossible to go further inland. Countries like Kiribati, Tuvalu, the Marshall Islands, where there are atoll islands that not much land. So relocations can be to other islands, or else it could be beyond the country's territory. So elsewhere, either to other Pacific Island countries or to Australia or New Zealand. When she looks to the future, Tammy knows of the challenges, but she is hopeful. I think in the coming years we'll be experiencing more climate change issues, but I know that Pacific Islanders are very resilient and I think it should push us to work together, not only as individuals, but also as countries, as organizations, as, as agencies to try and build resilient infrastructures that will safeguard our urban cities uh, from the impacts of climate change, but also build resilience capacity in communities so that they can better adapt to climate change impacts. Whatever happens, whether people are forced to move or not, Tammy says they shouldn't be called climate change refugees. The High Commissioner agrees. I think that even without calling them climate refugees, which I would be a little bit nervous about, because, you know, if you start playing with the concepts in a world that is so difficult around these issues, the risk is that you have concepts that are less 
encompassing. So we need to be careful about that. I'd rather say that there are many situations of natural disaster, of climate impact that generate population movements. And in those contexts, people have to face protection issues that are very similar to those of refugees. He points to a natural disaster in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in May. A volcano eruption near the eastern city of Goma displaced around 400,000 people. Goma happens to be next to Rwanda. Half of these people went across the border because it was the safest way to seek protection. Rwanda was very good, kept border open and took people in. It is a form of protection that is given to them, even if it is not the traditional flight from violence or war. But convincing countries to keep their borders open, that's the issue we go to next. Part two, externalization. Now, what is happening increasingly is that the flow of people entering rich countries, Europe, North America, Australia, the flow of people coming to these countries has become more complicated. Complicated because not everyone crossing a border is a refugee. People who need international protection travel also with migrants. They are using the same route. Vincent Cochetel is the special envoy for the Mediterranean situation. He gives the example of those leaving Mali. For instance, you have half of the Malian living for a better economic future somewhere, and another half living because their place of residence has been destroyed because they can be killed by the militant groups there. And it's difficult to distinguish who is who, so the, the work is more complex. Another complication, refugees fleeing persecution may move more than once. What they will often do is then move from that country to another country where they might have a better economic advantage or they may have family where they can get support. And so they may start off as a refugee, but they may end up moving so-called secondary movements across Africa, maybe even across the Mediterranean to Europe, where they will be described as economic migrants. So they can be a mixture of the two. So rich countries are becoming worried, partly because in those same countries, the political debate has stigmatized these people, has used them as a either a scapegoat or a kind of um, threat that allows these politicians to gain more votes. We know all that rhetoric, terrible, toxic rhetoric. In response, some countries are shunning their responsibilities. They're turning to what's called externalization. States close their borders to asylum seekers and instead fly them to a different country. That country then screens the applicant and decides their future. Australia started it with uh, people arriving on its shores, being diverted to Nauru, to Manos Islands, to other countries. And now we hear this uh, promoted by some countries in Europe. The previous US administration did it in Central America. So it's becoming a bit of a trend. In several places, Asylum seekers are then held in detention or administrative centres. Many, many detention centres are pretty well exactly the same as prisons. And the real difference between a, a prison and a detention centre is that if you're in prison, there's every good chance that you've had a trial and you are there with rights. You often have a, a cell of your own, families can visit, you can study. You know, prisons have, are now regulated according to the rule of law. But administrative detention centres 
are almost legal black holes. They are places people can go to without end. Only a handful of countries have adopted or are exploring externalization. But the Assistant High Commissioner for Protection says it's a dangerous trend. Now we have Denmark, which is also now looking for a third country under what the Prime Minister declares is a zero asylum policy. No one will be allowed to claim asylum there. They will be transshipped to a third country. So far as I'm aware, that third country is yet to be identified. Most refugees are already hosted by the Global South, and the High Commissioner worries if the Global North starts turning away refugees, what message does that send to other nations? What should countries like Pakistan, like Kenya, like Colombia, and they're receiving the bulk of these refugees, what should they do? What if they denied access to territory? Then you would have hundreds of thousands of people at risk for their lives. So I'm very worried and uh, I'm telling these countries, please don't promote these approaches which are likely to really weaken the whole asylum construction around the world. Even the countries that keep their borders open don't always respect the rights of refugees. Next, we introduce you to one person who's advocating for the inclusion of all those who are displaced. Part three, inclusion. Sometimes information can save life. This is uh, something that I learned and I believed, uh, especially after I worked with the refugees as refugees for refugees, so. Aya Abdullah has been working with refugees almost as long as she's been a refugee. She was just 14 years old when in 2009, the war in Iraq forced her to flee. We had to pack what we can pack, but very fast. I took a small bag with me and I put on it my math book because I had an exam the following day and I didn't realize that we are leaving the country. I thought that we are going to come back the next day or in after hours, but um, then I just found myself in, in a different country. She found herself in Syria. Her family moved to Damascus. Aya says while she was devastated to leave her home, she didn't find the move difficult. She already spoke the language, Arabic and she was able to immediately enroll in school. I didn't feel that I was a refugee there. I was more like, uh, if I can say, a guest, because this is how the Syrian people made us feel. You know, they opened their homes, they gave us opportunities to work, to be integrated with them in the schools, to be our neighbors. It wasn't that strange and it wasn't that hard to start from the zero point in, in Syria. Aya felt she could build a future in Syria, go to university, perhaps get married, have kids. But in 2011, the crisis in Syria began, and the sounds that forced her out of Iraq would drive her out of Damascus. I was 16 years old when I left from Syria to Turkey. I was very conscious about what's happening because I knew that I was a refugee. I knew that I was going to a different situation. I'm going to a country that I'm not familiar with. In Turkey, she wasn't able to enroll in school right away. Aya had to find a job to help support her family. For six years, her family moved from one apartment to another 12 times, searching for accommodation they could afford. Despite those moves, Aya found a way to balance both work and school, but it was difficult. I felt that I took responsibility bigger than, than me and it's, it's not a comfortable zone and I just wanted to make things work in, in a different way. She would get her chance 
almost by chance. She was 17 and went to the office of one of UNHCR's partners. Because she spoke English, Arabic and by now a bit of Turkish, she was hired as an interpreter. This is, was a life-changing point. I, I mean, I, I still smile when I remember it, to be honest. Aya started working with refugees, informing them about their rights. At the time, hundreds of thousands were arriving in Turkey. It quickly became the country hosting the largest number of refugees. Now, nearly four million. Aya says she met many people that inspired her, but there is one family she'll never forget. A Syrian mom who lost her child in, in the borders, and, and we went through all of, of, of calling uh, the Turkish uh, border police and, and so on. And I remember when I took her, after I found where her son was, and that hug, when she hugged him, and then she came and hugged me with her son. So, you know, like this happiness I won't ever forget in my life. After spending six years in Turkey, Aya and her family were resettled in Switzerland. It was amazing, you know, like to feel that you have the chance to start a new life, a new opportunity. But Aya ran into unexpected obstacles. She applied to different universities, but she was missing documentation and she was told she was too old. She was only 22. To be uh, very honest with you, it wasn't that easy, even though that I live in a really good country. But in the first period of time here, I suffered from depression. There were new barriers in front of me. I was stuck in my educational life. I, I felt that I'm going to struggle a lot in, in, in this country. She didn't give up. Aya kept applying until she got an acceptance letter. It came from Webster University. They said that they are happy to offer me a scholarship in their university. And uh, now I'm in my senior year. I'm going to graduate in a few months and I will have a degree of double majors, international relations and media communications. And, and I mean, oh, my God, I, I just feel like a dream is coming true, you know. During this time, even while studying, Aya didn't stop working for refugees. I decide to be not a destroyer. In 2018, UNHCR selected her as a delegate for the Global Youth Advisory Council. If you want to create peace, it's easy. I was so glad to be a voice for the refugees in front of world leaders, in front of people who can make a decision and can change the refugees' life to become easier and, and better. Aya is also the president of an NGO linked to her school. Her focus is on helping refugees integrate in Switzerland. She admits she still struggles a bit on that front. Getting a job isn't easy because of her refugee status. That's why for Aya, inclusion is key. She says refugees should be given opportunities to thrive, no matter their status or which country they're in. Because for so many refugees, going back to their country of origin isn't an option. I really wish that I can go back, to be honest, but I don't think situations are doing fine. If one day Iraq will get better and it will be a safe place, why not to not return to my country? It's, it's the country that I was born in. It's the country where I have my roots at. So if one day situations get better and I can do something in Iraq... I won't even think about it, I would just go. Voluntary repatriation was once an option for millions of refugees, but not anymore. 
just over 250,000 refugees were able to return to their country of origin in 2020. People want to go home. The million Rohingya in Cox's Bazar in Bangladesh from Myanmar, they look across the waters literally at their own homeland and say, we want to go home. But they cannot go home in the current uh, military environment. That's true of, of Afghanistan, now entering its fifth decade. It's true of the Syrians. And it's true of many parts of, of Africa as well. So the, the classic solutions that UNHCR would, would rely on, resettlement and voluntary repatriation that we would assist with, they are declining opportunities. Humanitarian solutions can only go so far in the absence of political solutions. But at times, those seem impossible. If you take uh, the United Nations' main organ task with conflict resolution, uh, the Security Council, the Security Council has become almost unable to agree on anything. Even very simple humanitarian issues, unity seems an impossibility these days. That's what worries me, because if you don't solve all conflict, new conflicts come, emerge and erupt, and this number, 82.4 million, is destined to grow year after year. In the face of all these threats, there are solutions. One of them is the Global Compact on Refugees. The Global Compact on Refugees is a blueprint for action. Part four, solutions. In 2018, the non-binding compact was affirmed by the UN General Assembly. The aim is to find ways to help countries hosting the majority of refugees. More than 85% are in low- or middle-income countries. Another goal is for wealthier countries to play a stronger role and share more responsibility. The other breakthrough idea was that this wasn't just for sovereign nation-states. This was for the whole global community of NGOs, of the private sector, for faith-based groups, for mayors and local government, for all sorts of civil society groups that they too would accept responsibility. It is now up to all of us to ensure its promise becomes a reality for the millions of refugees and host communities counting on us. A year later, UNHCR held the Global Refugee Forum. Various governments and groups made 1,400 pledges. They include commitments to expand access to education, create more scholarships, and increase the recruitment of refugees in workplaces. We want to talk about cities working for refugee populations. We want to talk about uh, access to services, to employment. While the idea is to share responsibility, not every country views their obligations in the same way. There are some countries of the global north who say, well, we will invest in the global south uh, so long as people don't move across to us. And that's a sort of rather negative twist on the compact, and some are using the compact in that way. But I'm more optimistic that once COVID lifts, we will be able to work in a more global and interconnected way. That's the ambition. The compact is not a silver bullet that we solve all the problems. But I think that if we seriously engage in supporting it, all of us, really the compact can be transformative. It is my great pleasure and honor to declare open the 76th regular session of the General Assembly. Every September, world leaders gather at the UN General Assembly to pitch their vision for the world. We asked three refugees we met in this podcast, Mary Maker, 
Aya Abdullah and Guled Maya what they would say if they were standing at that green marble podium, because for any solution to work, those displaced need to be part of the discussion. Refugees have more abilities. Tap into the assets that they do have. Tap into the abilities that they do bring. By doing that, you're not killing the hope that they have. Give them chances, invest in them, give them spaces, listen to them. Don't bring things to them. Let them develop things for themselves because they know better. They have experienced that bitterness, that war. They know what need to be done for a change. We really need a call and encouragement for everyone to do their best, to share their good examples and like to show that refugees actually are human beings and they have the right to have normal lives even if they are living through very hard conditions. If there is a will, there's a way. And right now, actually, what we're doing is we're turning a blind eye on so many other people, um, so many other refugees that are literally just have nothing, no hope, no future in sight. And we have a responsibility to be able to intervene in that. So if we don't want to continue the cycle of victims and continue the cycle of negative narrative, we have to change and to give the opportunity for children to study and to have educational life so they can really support themselves and build a better future. And that way we, we don't lose a whole generation. I feel like uh, if uh, refugees are given more spaces in terms of more classrooms, more books, knowledge is the greatest element that you can ever give to a refugee because they develop themselves from that. They know the problems that they face or what made them flee. And so they would be in a better chance of correcting that and being able to go uh, and dig into that knowledge that will correct the wrongs that were done in their countries. So if you give refugees resources, to be able to access knowledge and learning. They're able to achieve so much in the future. The thing that world leaders need to start to recognize now more than ever before is that this isn't at your expense. Actually, we're advantageous for you. You know, studies show again and again that we're a benefit to host societies, both economically, socially. We all have a story of wanting to succeed determined to contribute to our communities. So this is actually an opportunity to be able to capitalize on enriching your nations, both socially and economically. It's an opportunity to also be part and play a key role in addressing the global refugee crisis. You've been listening to Force to Flee, a podcast from UNHCR. Thank you to everyone who shared their stories and helped bring this podcast to life. Force to Flee is produced, written and mixed by Wakas Chuktai. Our editor is Shirley Kamia. Additional production support in this episode by Naomi Luella. And special thanks to Edith Champagne, Chris Reardon, Michaela Malena, the team in Australia, the web and data teams, 
the senior executive team in Geneva, and the High Commissioner, Filippo Grandi. The opening music was composed by Afrodeutsch, visual design, marketing, and social media by Red Havas. Our executive producer is Barney Thompson, and I'm your host, UNHCR Goodwill Ambassador, Anita Rani. To learn more about the UN Refugee Agency, please visit unhcr.org slash forced to flee podcast. Thank you for listening.